Malachi chapter 2. Our text for today is verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. And this is the word of God for us today. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. Lord, there's a lot of judgment in this text today. Don't let us miss it because we don't like it. There's a lot of hope in this text today. Help us find it. Let us be faithful to you, faithful to your word, believing that you are holy and just, learning how to find grace in you. God, do good stuff with us today. Make us what you want us to be. Accomplish your will, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. So, when I turned 40, which was not that terribly long ago, all things, that wasn't that funny, we took the family on a little road trip. Now, here's the fun part. We didn't tell the kids where we were going. We just threw them in the van. I mean, not literally, because that would have been weird. But we, we put them in there, and we packed up, and we were, we were living in Illinois at the time, and we drove to Orlando, Florida. Now, now, here's the thing. If you've ever had children in a car trip, you know that there are pros and cons to this adventure already, right? Two days with potty breaks and the like of eight hours in the car. And I've got to believe that for the kids, that had to be a tough experience from time to time. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you think if you were a little person in the car that that might get tough? But we assured them that something special was at the end. See, what they didn't know is that we were actually going to do a little bit of time, a couple of days at Universal in Orlando. They had just opened the whole little Harry Potter land there. Don't judge me. And, 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 and we went there. And, and, and I mean, again, the car ride was, was tough. But, but they knew mom and dad said something 
special is coming at the end that's going to make this worth it. Now, the car trip wasn't miserable all the time. We did some fun stuff on the ride, but we, they knew something good was coming that made the hours in the van endurable. And you should have seen how goofy they got when they found out what we were really doing. The fun, the rides, the pumpkin juice, they made the trip worthwhile for my little monsters. And in life that we live, we are often like the children in the car. God's got a plan. He's working out. God has a future that he has promised us. But in the hardships that you and I face in the day to day, sometimes we can wonder if anything good is actually coming in our future. We can wonder, does God really know what he's doing? We can wonder, is God really going to make things right in the end? And if we don't trust God, we can start to accuse God of some pretty rotten things. But my children in the van could not judge their situation with accuracy. You know why? They didn't have anything like all the information. They had no idea what they were up to. They just knew they needed to trust us. They had the word of mom and dad that something good was coming. What we have, dear friends, is God's word. That he is good, that his ways are just, and that he will accomplish his will. So this morning, we're going to continue the look that we have at the book of Malachi. And in it, we're going to watch God respond to a people who were not trusting God. And they were not trusting his goodness. And they began to accuse God of some pretty rotten things. And we'll see from God a major prediction of what God is about to do. If you are a note-taking type, you can prepare to write down four key points that we will find as we study this passage. There are going to be some things we can learn as we watch a people respond to God, actually very wrongly, they make a lot of mistakes. But we're going to watch God respond in a prophecy that tells of the coming of Jesus. So our first point this morning you're going to learn, treat God as holy. Treat God as holy. Verse 17 of chapter 2 says, this is Malachi speaking for God to the people, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Malachi spoke to the people of Israel on God's behalf around the year 430 B.C., 430 years before the birth of Jesus, give or take. Israel, you might know, was the nation through which God had promised to do something amazing. God said he was going to send a person into this world through Israel, through that nation, and that person who would come would be our only hope to be rescued from our sin. He was going to bring people forgiveness and grace instead of the judgment that we all deserve. And Israel as a nation had entered into a covenant with God, a, a, sort of, a sort of contract or agreement. The nation of Israel agreed that they would worship according to God's commands and that they would live in accord with God's laws. And God made this simple agreement with Israel. 
I will give you, God says, great blessing as a nation when you obey me. And I will rightly punish you when you disobey me. And you've got to remember, Israel repeatedly agreed to abide by that agreement, by those rules. And God promised that no matter what, no matter what, God was going to preserve enough of that nation alive that he would bring the promised one into the world through the nation of Israel. So God's never going to wipe them out completely, he says, no matter how bad they got, because he was going to bring the promised one into the world through them. That's part of the Israel history. Well, by the time of Malachi in 430 BC, most of the nation of Israel had gone into exile and most of them never came back to the land, at least not yet. But there's one tribe of that, of the 12 tribes of Israel that was back, the tribe of Judah and some of the Levites, the priests were there. They had returned to the land and for the last hundred years before Malachi, the people had experienced both blessings from God and they had experienced some of those hardships that God promised for their disobedience. On the one hand, things were pretty good. The city of Jerusalem had been rebuilt. The temple was back in service. The priests were making offerings again. And the people had reaffirmed their covenant commitment to God. They had said, God, we want to follow you. You bless us when we do good. You squash us when we do bad. But on the other hand, there were some problems. The people of Judah were not experiencing the prosperity they wanted. Can you believe that they were not as rich as they wanted to be? Any of y'all ever experienced that? They were not free of what they didn't like as a bad government. The Persian Empire was over them and they didn't like the government. Any of y'all ever experienced that? Life seemed hard. Well, in the book of Malachi, we've seen, though... These people were rebelling against God. Chapter 1, we saw that they forgot God had been faithful and loving to them. We saw that they were not honoring and fearing God rightly. We saw that they were unfaithful in the way that they worshiped, disobeying God's commands. They were unfaithful, chapter 2, in teaching the word of God. Many of the men in the nation had been unfaithful at home. They walked away from their wives and married other women who wanted nothing to do with God. They were violating the terms of their marriage. They were just, they were just leaving their women out to dry. It was evil. It was, it was, it was ugly. So does it surprise you to find out that with Judah being that unfaithful, does it surprise you that God had not poured out a big mountain of blessings on them? Does it really surprise us? Should it surprise us that God let those folks go through some hardships so they could be reminded that they needed to turn back and follow him? It's not a surprise, is it? Well, here's the thing. With all that, the people... We're complaining against God as if God was the one who was wrong here. They're offending God. God says, you have wearied me with your words. By the way, have any of you ever been wearied by somebody's words? I mean, come on, you're sitting right here with me. Of course you've been wearied by somebody's words. <laughs> they, they were offending God by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Well, they ask, where is this God of justice I've heard about? You know what they're doing? They're saying to God, you're not just. They're saying to God, you bless the wicked and you're cruel to the good. They say to God, hey, by the way, this is a foolish question to ask. Come on, God, where's all this justice you promised? 
Remember, these are the people who themselves are violating the law of God, are demanding that God show up and bring some justice with him. Can you imagine? Do you see the problem? You do, right? I hope you see it. But you and I need to pause and learn from it, too. The Bible says God is holy. He's perfect. He is without flaw. He's without peer in the universe. There's no one like God. The Bible teaches us that God sees the big picture of all that's happening in a way that you and I simply cannot. You and I, we're stained. We're, we're tainted by our own sin. We are limited by our own finite minds. Have you ever found out you don't know everything? I've discovered this from time to time. We are easily tempted to think that we know better than God how things ought to go. God, if you're good, you're going to do it this way, is what we often think. And the caution in this verse is simple. God is, God is not happy with the attitude of the people because they're not treating God as if God is holy. They're not remembering that God is perfect, all good, all knowing. So friends, let's begin today by learning from the mistakes of the tribe of Judah. God is infinitely greater than we are. God knows everything that there is to know in the universe and beyond in one effortless moment. God has never done wrong. As the holy creator, God actually defines what is good by his nature. God is not held up to an external standard to be, measured, to be measured as good or bad. God, by definition, is that which is good. Right? There is no good that is not good according to God. There's no evil that is not evil according to God. And if we're going to be able to handle the life we have to live, we've got to remember first that God's holy. We need to treat God as holy. That means that we start from a point of view that says God knows more than we do. That we start from a point that says God's ways are better than ours. That his understanding of morality is perfect where mine is flawed. And the mistake of the people of Judah was to accuse God of loving the evil. Why'd they say that? They said it because God didn't give them freedom from Persian rule like they wanted. They cried out, oh God, do justice. But they forget. If, they, if God really came to them and started off doing justice, they would be the first people to suffer God's wrath for their sin just as they agreed in the covenant. They were disobedient to the word of God. So let's be careful in how we think. Let's remember, you and I can't see everything that God sees. Let's remember that God is good. Let's start by treating God as holy. There's point one, treat God as holy. But we're going to go on and find a second point. Believe in God's promises. Believe in God's promises. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the beginning of 2. Behold, I send my, me or I am, I send my messenger, 
and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? So here we begin to see God's answer to the people's complaint against him. And God's letting these people know, you're not actually going to like my answer as much as you think. You want me to do justice, do you? Just wait. Coming very soon, I'm going to send first a messenger ahead of me. In the old days, kings, when they were traveling to a city, always sent a messenger ahead to say, get ready, king's coming. God says, I'm sending a messenger ahead of me, and then I am showing up. And God says, you won't be able to stand in my presence. What happens when the messenger comes? Again, the messenger prepares the way for who's coming according to that text. In verse 1 it says the Lord's coming. In case you don't know, the Lord who is coming, this is a prediction that God is coming. The Hebrew word behind the word Lord there is the word Adonai. It's one of the words in the Old Testament for God, God as Lord. He is coming, note, note that this says the Lord who is coming is coming to his temple. And I would suggest to you that this is evidence of the Trinity found in the Old Testament because God is sending, who is God sending? God is sending God. Huh, that's neat. Whose temple is it? God's temple. God is sending God's, God to God's temple. So God himself is going to show up. God is going to confirm his covenant. Even that little phrase in there, the messenger of the covenant, that might be a parallel to the phrase angel of the Lord, which is sometimes used for God appearing in the Old Testament. But they notice this question. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Because when God appears, God is going to be, honestly, when God shows up, it's actually kind of scary, guys. God is holy. God is perfect. God is pure. God is an all-consuming fire, the Old Testament says. God's perfection threatens to destroy what is imperfect. Do you want to guess what is imperfect? All of us are imperfect. None of us, not one of us, is going to deserve to be left alive when he appears. That's what's being said here. Think back in the Bible to any time anybody ever saw God Judges 13.22 reads, Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. Isaiah 6.5 says, I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was scared. He thought he would disintegrate. Revelation 1.17 begins with John saying, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Why did these men respond like this? Because when mankind sees the perfection, the majesty, the holiness of God, we are made aware of how great is our sinfulness, our imperfection, our falling short of the glory of God. You know, I, I've heard stories... Of, of ladies who wouldn't go work out in a particular gym 
Because all the other ladies in the gym were all in better shape than the women who were going to go to the gym. And the first women didn't want to be on a treadmill next to like some supermodel on steroids or whatever, right? They, 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 she, she, she didn't want to, does, that, does that make sense? That, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to stand around the perfect people. If, if I judge my value by how I look, I don't want to stand next to the pretty, right? Or maybe, maybe somebody says, I don't want to play a game with that person because they're so good that my lack of skill is going to be exposed. That makes sense too, doesn't it? Let me tell you, to stand in front of a holy God is far more dreadful and far more exposing than all that. Because to stand before God in our imperfect state is deadly. That's what the Bible says. Now, interestingly, the promise we see here in 3.1 is a promise that has already in our day been fulfilled and is still to be fulfilled. And it happens on more than one occasion uh, in the Old Testament this way that prophecies come, right? Sometimes the prophet will look forward and sometimes the prophet will tell the people of God about something that's coming. And, And the thing that he tells them about is something that happens really soon. But at the same time, the thing that happens really soon is a pointer toward something much bigger that God is gonna do later. One of the terms for this, one of the terms that I remember a professor using for it was prophetic foreshortening. You ever heard the word foreshortening before? It's a term borrowed from art and it has to do with perspective. So, like, if you imagine that you are a painter, any of you artsy people in here? Some of you artsy? Are you raising your hands at me? Because that would be silly. But (laughs) some of them were, weren't they? All right, so you might paint a landscape, right? Imagine you're standing here and you're looking at the landscape and you see a mountain range in the background. From the perspective of the artist, as you paint those peaks, you might think that those peaks are all about the same distance from you, right? Because from a distance of a mountain range, all the mountains look like that's a spot over there, that's the mountains. But if you know the map very well, you might learn that some of the peaks you are seeing are way further away than other peaks that you see, right? When the near and far look to be a similar distance away, that can be called foreshortening. And in this instance, there is a prophetic foreshortening. Why do I say that? Because around 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to the temple in Jerusalem. The messenger came, Jesus came, God came. But the Bible also teaches us that someday in the future, Jesus is going to return as a judge. So God's promise to the people who were questioning his justice has both been fulfilled once in small and is going to be fulfilled again in large. Jesus came. He was preceded by a man named John the Baptist. He was the messenger that's talked about in 3.1. He prepared the way. He told people, get ready to meet the one God has promised. And Jesus, the Lord, came. And Jesus came to the temple. But that time that Jesus came, 2,000 years ago, Jesus did not come to judge at first. Thanks be to God, Jesus came first to rescue, to save people like you and me. And Jesus is going to come again. 
Jesus is going to come someday in the future. We don't know when. And when he comes, he is going to come in his fully wide open glorified state with his holiness blazing forth. And that will expose his perfection. That will expose our imperfection. That will expose unworthiness. And if that happens, none of us deserve to stand on that day. If we were left to ourselves, we'd be in big, 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 big trouble. And that makes us tremble at the prospect of Jesus coming and bringing the justice of God. Now, if you don't know Jesus, you got to tremble for yourself. Because, see, you can't stand before God by yourself. If I don't have Jesus, I can't stand before God by myself. He will expose our lack of perfection. He would judge us for our sin. And we couldn't stand. But listen to me, friends. Don't hear that as hopeless. You can be forgiven. Isn't that kind of good news? We can be forgiven by God. And listen to me real carefully here. I don't care how good you think you've been or how bad you think you are. The forgiveness of God is available. That's good news. So how could you and I be forgiven if we're not perfect? The answer is Jesus, the one who came to his temple. See, God promises us that if we will turn to Jesus in faith, if we will turn away from living apart from God, if we will say, I want to live for God now, I trust in Jesus, I believe in Jesus and what he did, we will be given forgiveness from God as a free gift. Turn away from sin and self, trust in Jesus, and you need not be afraid of his appearing a second time to judge. How'd that work? Jesus, in his earthly life, did what God requires. Jesus lived a perfect life. Ain't nobody else ever done that. How close do you think you are to perfect? Let's not score that, right? Jesus then went to the cross and he died though he didn't deserve to die. And in his death, he paid the penalty for every sin God would ever forgive. Why? This enables God to be one, the God of justice, totally perfectly punishing every sin, and God being the God who forgives every single person who comes to him for mercy. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 26, read this way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what does that mean? What it means is this. Jesus perfectly makes it so that God has never pretended a sin didn't happen. God always judges it perfectly. But at the same time, that you and I can be forgiven by God because Jesus also took the penalty we deserve so that God can look at us with love and love alone. Christians, we tremble at the concept of God coming back, of Jesus coming back, of Jesus judging, because it is still terrifying, not for us, but for others. And this awe at the return of Jesus needs to make Christians 
Tell other people about the good news of God's grace. The children learned that in vacation Bible school. Those who love Jesus, tell people about Jesus, right? Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The kids learned that verse this week. We want people to be rescued, and so we tell them, God will forgive you if you come to him through Jesus. So the question that the people were asking is, where is God's justice? God's answer was, it's coming soon. Let's pray, Christians, that God will use us to help others come to God for grace. Believe in God's promises. He promised he would come to his temple and change the world. Guess what? He did. He promised he's going to come again and judge who opposes him. He will. Russ even read scripture to us um, on that regard this morning. He promised he will forgive everyone who comes to Jesus in faith. He surely will. He has promised eternal life, eternal joy, eternal peace, eternal happiness, perfect fulfillment, a forever that makes up for the, all of the hardest things we've ever gone through and infinitely beyond. He promises that to everyone who comes to Jesus. That's our hope. Like the kids in the car, right? Something good's at the end of this, no matter how hard it feels. There's our hope. That's why we believe in God's promises. Third point, we've got to keep going. Be changed by Jesus. Christians, this is for you. Be changed by Jesus. Look at two through four. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Uh, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old as in, and as in former years. So, so Jesus here is called, look at this, a refiner's fire and is compared to Fuller's soap. I'm guessing all of you guys are thinking that today already, right? Oh, just like Fuller's soap. That's what I was thinking. No? We'll talk about that. Here's what you, here's what you need to know, first of all. With refiner's fire and Fuller's soap, here's where you should be happy. These are not words of destruction. Aren't you glad about that? Both of these words have to do with being cleansed, cleaned up, made better, purified. Now, to be honest, sometimes cleansing can be a bit painful, right? Men, you may not understand this, but women understand that sometimes cleansing is painful. The things that some ladies do to themselves to, I don't understand it. It sounds awfully painful. I'm going to scrape this off. I'm going to pluck this out, whatever. But the cleansing that's offered here is, is maybe painful, but it's good and it's powerful. You know, the practice of refining metal like gold or silver, that was an amazing thing that the early people, the people centuries ago, millennia ago, had figured out how to do. See, because people, would, when you dig up gold and you pan for gold, you find a little bit of gold, but it's a mixture of gold and silver and maybe copper, maybe other contaminants. So I read an article about how do you do this? How do you, how do you, how did you, refine silver or gold. 
This is talking about gold, and the article said, quote, the, the, they placed raw material in small bowl-shaped hearths in the ground and fanning hot coals with bellows, heated it in combination with lead to remove the trace metals. Then the remaining material mixed with common salt was subjected to prolonged heating in earthenware vessels until the gold was completely separated from the silver. So, to go simple, gold was exposed to extreme heat for a long time until the contaminants were melted away, burned away, or otherwise removed. Now be honest, if you were the gold, you think you would like that? Maybe not. Jesus is both here said to be the refiner and the fire. He's the one who makes us more like he wants us to be, makes us more perfect. And sometimes he's the heat that we feel blast away our imperfections. He's the one who washes us. That's what, what fuller's soap is. A fuller was like a cloth, was, was someone who would launder cloth, especially cloth that was just being made for the first time. So they would use this really harsh soap to get the oils out of fresh cloth. Like again, wool comes from sheep and sheep have oils and you got to use this really strong soap to get all the yuck out of that so it could be nice clean cloth. He's like a fuller washing clothes. He washes us till we're clean enough. Now get this, here's what Jesus is gonna do with us. He will wash us, he will keep changing us from the day you're forgiven till the day you die. He will keep washing you and changing you and purifying you until you are clean enough to stand in the presence of God. So in this Malachi passage, Jesus says he's going to, God says Jesus is going to come. He's going to refine the people of Levi and Judah, the priests who have not been living properly, who have not been worshiping properly here in the book of Malachi. They are going to feel the heat of the holiness of God, and there's going to be a change. And the priests of Malachi's day probably thought, well, that's kind of cool. This means that, that we're going to fix the temple, and we're going to do things right in the temple. But you know what? Actually, we learn as the years went by, God was doing something they didn't expect. Because Jesus came, and Jesus made the one and the only sacrifice that can pay for sins. No other blood offering, no other animal dying, no other religious practice has ever been something God says, I will accept that for your forgiveness. Jesus made the only offering that will pay for sins. And everyone who comes to Jesus, remember we learned, becomes part of a new family, or even in... in um, 1 Peter 2 becomes part of the priesthood of all believers, right? And now we make offerings, yes, but not animals. We make offerings that are acceptable to God when we honor him with our lives. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you then therefore, therefore brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Those changes, there's the refining, right? So what does God want you and me to take away from this picture? First, he wants us to know he's not judging people right away. Aren't you glad about that? What if God chose to judge you at your first mistake? You're done. I, I, don't, I, I would not have made it through birth, most likely. I don't know, but I was probably really mad at that moment. God 
didn't judge right away. Why? Not because he's unjust. He's going to be totally just. But God has a plan to rescue and purify, to save people, to, to, to refine people, to make people who are able to worship him rightly. Don't grow impatient wanting God to judge the world. That happens sometimes, right? We see some ugliness in our world. We see some nastiness in our world. We're like, God, when are you going to lower the boom? But you don't know who God's going to save, do you? God might even be going to rescue the person you think you'd like to see judged. And God might change them and refine them and make them into something more beautiful than you could ever imagine. And God also wants us to, to want to be refined by Jesus. You know if you've come to Jesus for mercy. The moment you come to Jesus for mercy, you find out that God gives you a perfectly clean legal record before him. You stand before God legally perfect if you come to Jesus for mercy. But how many of you, even if you have a perfect legal record, feel like you're perfect from day to day? Not so much, right? We have sin kind of mixed in with our gold, right? We want to pray asking Jesus, refine us, cleanse us, sanctify us, make us more like him. So right now, Christians, I bet, I bet you can think of one or two areas of your life where you've got some contaminants left. Is that hard to do? 12, 20, 35 areas? Maybe it's your attitude at work. Maybe it's the, the way you let your mind think about things that are evil rather than good. Maybe it's how you talk about other people. Maybe it's how you view other people. Maybe it's how you deal with anger. Right now, pray that Jesus will apply his heat to your sin and convict you and step up the process of purifying you. Ask Jesus, sanctify me. Make me more like you want me to be. Now, you guys think that might be hurtful? It might hurt a little bit, right? But the resulting purity is well worth the pain. Fourth point. Come to Jesus for mercy and avoid God's judgment. Come to Jesus for mercy and avoid God's judgment. This last verse is hard, guys. Verse 5. Remember the people had said, where's the God of justice? Where's your justice, God? God says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, those who are oppressing all those people, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Remember, this is all in the context of people saying God isn't just. God doesn't judge the evil fast enough. Can you imagine? God says, when I show up in blazing glory, I am going to swiftly judge. And the wrath, the judgment of God, it's going to fall on people for their sin. And here God gives us six categories of sin. Funny thing about these six categories these are the very sins that the people have already been proven guilty of in Malachi. God says, I'm going to tell you some sins I'm going to judge. And he starts naming theirs. 
But the point here with the six categories is it shows enough kinds of, of categories of sin that there's not one of us that's free from this stuff, guys. Not one of us can look at this list and say, I'm perfect. Whew. What are the sins he's going to judge? Starts off as sorcerers. Now, I'm going to guess none of you are that. God has forbidden people from dabbling in the dark arts. God has forbidden people from playing with the powers of the demonic. That is real. It's not made up. It's something for which God will judge people. And that can include witchcraft, fortune-telling, you know what, types of astrology. Don't mess with this stuff, guys. It's dangerous. God doesn't like it. Adulterers. Remember chapter 2, verses 10 through 16? These priests were walking away from their wives for new women just because they wanted some new women. Now he says, I'm going to judge the adulterers. This is a major sin. The priests were guilty of this. They divorced their wives for other women. Listen to me. Being unfaithful to your marriage vows, helping somebody else be unfaithful to their marriage vows is a serious deal before God. I'm not saying that God doesn't give biblical honest grounds for divorce, but don't you be the one who causes it. Those who swear falsely. God's not fond of liars, so don't do it. Especially, this is kind of in a court setting, those who would testify falsely, especially. Those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, or those who oppress the widow and the fatherless. God doesn't like it when people who have strength and power use that to be unjust, unkind, unfair to the weak. Those who thrust aside the sojourner, again, it's like the last one, God does not approve of people taking advantage of other people who are less able to take care of themselves. Uh, you know, again, in, in Israel, it was people who lived in the land who, who, who were not part of the nation. And they're like, well, hey, you're not, you're not as good as us, so I'm going to put you down. I'm going to squash you. I'm going to not give you a fair day in court, that kind of thing. But then the last one is, God says, those who don't fear me. We've seen the people guilty of this all the way through this book. All sin, be it any of the five previous or any other sin you could think of, boils down to this, not fearing God. Because if you honor God rightly, if you respect the power of God rightly, if you respect the name of God rightly, if you respect the holiness of God rightly, you will not sin against God. When we sin, we are saying to God, I don't care. God's telling the people he's going to come. He's going to judge and then nobody's going to ask about his justice because he is swiftly and completely going to show how powerful is his perfection, how holy is his wrath. And nobody was going to hear this and, and say, yeah, God, you go get him. Because God listed the different kinds of sins in such a way that all of us are guilty of them in one form or another because we've all sinned against God. All of us have failed to fear God. If you've ever been less than perfect, you have failed at fearing God. How many of us have ever lied? Oh dear. How many of us have ever been less than perfectly kind to someone less fortunate than us? Oh dear. How many of us have ever been lustful in such a way that would not honor the vows of marriage? How many of us have ever looked to something superstitious, good luck charms instead of trusting God? Don't you see, guys? Man, don't ever think that Christians sit in a church, in a church gathering and say, well, we're better than the rest of the world. We are not. We're not holy like God. We've all fallen short of his perfection. 
But God sent Jesus to save us, and that is why we are eternally grateful to God. If you haven't come to Jesus, if you've never asked for his grace, for his forgiveness, what in the world are you waiting for? God has been patient with us all. We're not good enough to make God ignore our sin. We deserve God's judgment. But God says he will forgive those who come to him seeking grace in Jesus. So where is the justice of God? Where is the justice of God? Praise God, it's delayed. But make no mistake, every single sin will be punished. God has to. If God is a just judge, he must punish all sin. So here's your options. Ready? Here's your two choices. Either God will judge you for your sin or God punished Jesus for your sin. If God punishes you, you can't take that. None of us are big enough to take that. That's eternal wrath. But if God punished Jesus for our sins, the punishment has already been taken care of in Jesus on the cross. And if Jesus took our punishment on the cross, if you've come to Jesus for mercy, if you've come to Jesus in faith, Jesus says, I will give you forgiveness, I will give you life forever with God. No, guys, I'm going to tell you because I don't ever want to be dishonest. Living life in this world as a Christian is not always easy. True? True. Hard things still come to us all the time and punch us right in the mouth. But here's the thing. If you're under the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we have hope for eternity. That's worth more than any ease you can get in the here and now. Like the kids in the car. Maybe we think it really stinks. There's probably good spots along the way. But the best news is there's something really, really good to come. And we're living for that. God is holy. His promises are true. Jesus will forgive everyone who comes to him in faith. And Jesus will refine those who come to him, helping us to become what God wants us to be. Let's pray together, will you? Lord, you, you know, first of all, you know I don't enjoy a lot of judgment talk because I'm so, so grateful for grace. But truly, God, I also know this, that there's no value in grace if I don't know how much I've been forgiven of. There's no value in grace if I don't know how much You've saved me from. And Lord, I really, really desire to, to communicate. I want you to communicate to our people how great, how amazing is your grace. How being forgiven by Jesus makes this life worth living no matter what we face. Yes, God, convince us we're not perfect. But yes, God, teach us that Jesus so lovingly took our judgment. For those who don't know you, Lord, I would ask this. Help them to look up and realize that they need your mercy. Help them to believe that Jesus is the only way to be forgiven because of his death, and resurrection. 
and help them to say, Jesus, please, please forgive me. Not because I'm good, but just because of what you've done. And from now on, I want to follow you. God, we pray you have mercy on us. We thank you for your word. And we would ask you, Lord, just to do your will in our lives. Help us to believe this and then take it to others. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.